It's Improbable Research Podcast number 200. Today, we'll talk about research involving disgusting sounds, cello scrotum, a hole in the head, how shoppers respond to headless mannequins, some boys-will-be-boys research, telepathy and the Grateful Dead, the capacity of the nose, and whether all black dresses are hot in temperature. This, this is Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh, then think. Real research about anything and everything from everywhere. Research that's maybe good or bad, important or trivial, valuable or worthless. Compiled for you by the producers of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. I'm Mark Abrams, editor of the magazine Annals of Improbable Research and founder of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. This episode marks our dramatic return to podcasting after what feels like 200 years of absence. We'll begin by resurrecting things that many of you never got the chance to hear. And we intend to make lots of new stuff. We can really use your help on that. We've started a Patreon to fund it. If you become an improbable donor on our Patreon, you'll get special access to improbable things, early access to episodes, to audio from the cutting room floor, and even to copies of the Annals of Improbable Research magazine. Details are at www.patreon.com slash improbableresearch. For details about everything we talk about today, visit our website at improbable.com. Sounds delicious, with improbable dramatic readings by Jean Burko Gleason. Can a machine identify what you're chewing merely from the sound? Yes, if you are at a laboratory in Zurich, Switzerland, or Hall in Tirol, Austria, and if you are chewing potato crisps, apples, mixed lettuce, cooked pasta, or boiled rice. Oliver Ampft, Matthias Stager, and Gerhard Troster of the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, and Paul Lukowitz of Austria's University for the Health Sciences, Medical Informatics, and Technology, which is known as UMIT, U-M-I-T, all of them together describe their work succinctly. Using wearable microphones to detect and classify chewing sounds, called mastication sounds, from the user's mouth. But, they explain, this is just stage one of their dream. It's an unusual dream to build a computer-based machine that precisely and 100% reliably determines the type and amount of all and any food that the user has consumed. Nothing about stage one is easy. The scientists list three different approaches that a machine might take in trying to sense someone's food intake automatically. A. Detecting and analyzing chewing sounds. B. Using electrodes mounted on the base of the neck, e.g. in a collar, to detect and analyze bolus swallowing. C. Using motion sensors on the hands to detect food intake-related motions. Ampft, Stager, Troster, and Lukowitz chose option A. Detecting and analyzing chewing sounds. It alone seemed within the range of the technology available to them today. Their report is written for specialists, but contains delights for everyone. My favorite is the graph titled, Chewing Sound and Speech Recording in a Room with Background Music, which depicts the sound intensity during a minute-long span. The graph's four segments are labeled, Eating Lettuce, User Speaking, 
eating pasta, and music playing. Here are some of the things the scientists say they learned in having their machine analyze a total of 650 so-called chewing sequences that were produced by four healthy chewers. Good quality chewing sound signal can be obtained by placing a microphone in the ear canal. Chewing sounds can let me be... Inter- let me interrupt to ask what? because I cannot resist asking. Have you ever placed a microphone in your ear canal? No, but it's a, it's a great thought, isn't it? You could hear all your bones crunching. The next one, this is a bulleted list, so the next bullet is, chewing sounds can be discriminated from a signal containing a mixture of speech, silence, and chewing. Next bullet, listening to a sequence of chewing sounds, it is possible to identify the beginnings of the individual single chews. And the last bullet is, Chewing sound-based discrimination between very different kinds of food, the kinds mentioned above, is possible with greater than 80% accuracy. Just in case anyone listening is confused, we're discussing chewing. Is that correct? Chewing and chewing sounds. Chewing and chewing sounds. For those of us with misophonia, this is very upsetting. Misophonia? Yes. Misophonia is a newly discovered complex that some of us have, which we are disgusted and horrified by the sound of people chewing. You are disgusted and horrified by the sound of people chewing? Totally. What is this we? I'm sorry? What is this some people have? Rather? Well, it is an, it's been just, now people recognize that I'm not the only person in the world that's horrified by this. Are you horrified by all chewing sounds? Mostly, yes. By some your, are worse than others. By your own? Uh, I uh, no. No, but uh, what are the worst? The worst are gummy chewing sounds. If, if li- Actually, if I had to listen to somebody eating pasta, I would just fall over. Did you ever have to listen to somebody? Well, occasionally, yes, and it's just totally disgusting. What other foods are... Well, are- the crunchy ones aren't so bad. Gummy ones. Anything that's gluey sounding. Specific examples, I don't want to please. talk about it. It's, I know you don't. What? Give me two or three specific examples of food. Anything soft and mushy that people might be eating, where you hear smacking and slurpy kinds of noises. Tapioca? Well, tapioca is one, but it could be anything. It could be like eating a peach or something like that. Uh, chewing gum? Chewing gum is bad, but it's not as bad as the really gooey things. What else is gooey? Just anything gooey. If you made noise while eating pudding, you know, that is really hard. In the last year, what was the worst sound you've had to endure? Well, I don't know, because it's mixed with the smell of things. The smell of things. Well, I mean, the worst thing I can imagine would be to listen and watch someone eating a soft-boiled egg. I couldn't stay in the same room. A soft-boiled egg? It's the most disgusting thing I could think of. Did you ever have to endure watching? Yes, I have as a child, and I, it, it's ruined my childhood. That was the last time you... Uh, yes, because I won't stay in the room with anybody eating a soft-boiled egg. If they're going to eat a soft-boiled egg, they have to tell me, and I have to leave. When you meet new people, do you let them know... If they're here for breakfast, I do. I say, if you want a soft-boiled egg, let me know, and I will leave while you eat it. And you do leave? yes. Otherwise, I would be quite ill. I'm I'm sorry I disturbed you by asking this. That's okay. Let's continue. Anyway. This, being the paper that we were and now are (laughs) again are discussing this, all builds on decades of work that began with Swedish Institute for Food Preservation Research scientist B.K. Drake's 1963 study called Food Crushing Sounds, an Introductory Study. 
The study of chewing sounds is a very specialized field. The field apparently acquired a name in 1966 when British dentist D.M. Watt, W-A-T-T, published a paper called Gnathosonics, a study of sounds produced by the masticatory mechanism. How do you spell that word? Gnathosonics, G-N-A-T-H-O-S-O-N-I-C-S. I think it has to be gnatho. You could say natho, but that would be cheating, wouldn't it? I like gnatho. Have you encountered this word before? No, it's new to me. That's why I'm pronouncing the G so everybody can hear it. Gnathosonics. Don't you like that? I don't know the official pronunciation, but gnatho looks good to me. Don't you like it? Gnatho? How would you say it? Would you say natho? I believe I'm indifferent. I know. I like gnatho, especially since English doesn't have a lot of words that begin gna. Listening to that word is better than listening to somebody chewing a soft-boiled absolutely, egg. Absolutely, absolutely. Don't, I don't want to talk about it. I know you don't. Tell me more about soft-boiled eggs. <laughs> no, I won't, because I'd, be, I'd have to leave. Have you ever eaten a soft-boiled egg? I, I, I think somebody, maybe when I was a child, tried to feed me one, and that's probably was just the worst day of my life. I probably just screamed and was ill. You know, it's just too disgusting. And if somebody served you a soft-boiled egg now... Oh, please... You would scream and become I ill? I would leave. I would just get out of but there. But you would not scream and become ill? I would just excuse myself and get out. What, would, what specific words would you use? I would say, I am sorry, but I am repelled by the odor and sight of soft-boiled eggs, and I must leave now. Goodbye. Let's continue with our yes. adventure of this study. Yes. Ampft, which is spelled A-M-F-T, Ampft, Stager, Troster, and Lukowitz are proud of their chew-sound analysis achievement. But mindful of technology's limits, they aim to keep their aims simple. In their words, The system does not need to be fully automated to be useful. It is perfectly sufficient if at the end of the day the system could remind the user that, for example, at lunch who has something wet and crisp, could have been salad, and some texture stuff, spaghetti or potatoes, and asks him to fill in the details. Those specific foods they mentioned, are those okay? Is it all right to be in a room when you're hearing somebody? The crisp ones I wouldn't mind, but the soft ones, which we discussed, the soft texture stuff, the spaghetti and potatoes, would be very upsetting to listen to. Do you leave the room when somebody eats spaghetti? If they make noise, I would try to. Not slurping it, but making that mushy, gucky noise in the mouth. Which would be worse, slurping or making that... No, no, the slurping isn't that bad. It's the, it's the chewing sound. Are there other people who are more annoyed by the slurping? I don't think so. I think, I think chewing is what sets people who have this off. It's all a matter of ganathonomics. Yeah, I think so. You like that word, too. Yeah, how do you spell that again? G-N-A-T-H-O... N-O-M-I-C-S. You're sure? I don't know. I, I don't have it in front of me. It's oh. from memory. Ganathonomics. I like it. Good enough. The coming and going of cello scrotum. A look at a transitory medical concept with improbable dramatic readings by Chris Katsapas. The years 1974 through 2009 saw the inspiration, birth, and death of a medical ailment that puzzled some physicians, inspired others, and perhaps made no impact upon most doctors. Its history played out in the pages of several medical journals. Here are glimpses at the most pertinent chapters. It dealt with the cello, 
sort of. But the whole cello performance was preceded by an unusual medical report involving guitars. There was a report called Guitar Nipple, written by P. Curtis, published in the British Medical Journal in 1974. That author, P. Curtis, in Winchester in the UK, said, I have recently seen three patients with traumatic mastitis of one breast. These were all girls, aged between 8 and 10, and the mastitis consisted of a slightly inflamed cystic swelling about the base of the nipple. Questioning revealed that all three were learning to play the classical guitar, which requires close attention to the position of the instrument in relation to the body. In each case, a full-size guitar was used and the edge of the sound box pressed against the nipple. Two of the patients were right-handed and consequently had a right-handed mastitis, while the third was left-handed with a left-handed mastitis. When the guitar playing was stopped, the mastitis subsided spontaneously. Enter the cello, sort of. A report called Cello Scrotum, authored by J.M. Murphy, published also in the British Medical Journal later in 1974. The author in Chalford, Gloucester, in the UK, explained, Though I have not come across guitar nipple, as reported by Dr. P. Curtis, I did once come across a case of cello scrotum, caused by irritation from the body of the cello. The patient in question was a professional musician and played in rehearsal, practice, or concert for several hours each day. Seventeen years later, someone raised a question. A report called Cello Scrotum Questioned by Philip E. Shapiro was published in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology in 1991. The author at Yale University said, I question the accuracy of the information under the designation of Cello Scrotum. The authors cite just one case, which is not their own. That case consists of a brief, nine-line letter to the editor in which the author states that a professional cellist had cello scrotum, caused by irritation from the body of the cello. I find this a bit puzzling. When the cello is held in typical playing position, the body of the instrument is not near the scrotum. Contact of the body of the cello with the scrotum would require an extremely awkward playing position, which I have never seen a playing cellist assume. Eighteen years passed after that. Then came a confession. A report called Cello Scrotum Confession by Elaine Murphy and John M. Murphy was published in the British Medical Journal in 2009. Those authors, the former at the House of Lords in London, the latter at St. Peter's Brewery in Bungay, Suffolk, UK, explained, Perhaps after 34 years, it's time for us to confess that we invented Cello Scrotum. Reading Curtis's 1974 letter to the BMJ on guitar nipple, we thought it highly likely to be a spoof and decided to go one further by submitting a letter pretending to have noted a similar phenomenon in cellists, signed by the non-doctor one of us, John Murphy. Anyone who has ever watched a cello being played would realize the physical impossibility of our claim. Somewhat to our astonishment, the letter was published. We've been dining out on this story ever since. That also was not quite the end of it. A report called Pseudo Cello Scrotum question mark, by Anand Deshpanda was published in the British Medical Journal also in that year, 2009. The author in West Houghton, UK, writes, So, the Murphys tell us it's all a hoax and there is nothing called a cello scrotum. Then what about the three patients I saw in the last 20 years who made their own diagnoses, all male patients, of cello scrotum and abandoned a career in cello playing? I wonder, after all, if all these patients were actually suffering from a pseudo-cello scrotum syndrome, which occurs only in male cello players, and who fancy to have a rare medical condition as a proof of their music talent. Chris, I do have to ask, do you play the cello? 
I do not. Did you ever play the cello? I have not considered it. However, I used to play the guitar. And I have to admit, I have never developed guitar nipple. You did not have to admit that. A Hole in the Head, with improbable dramatic readings by Melissa Franklin. Holes seem simple enough until you examine them closely. Marco Bertomini of the University of Liverpool and Camilla Croucher of the University of Cambridge peered at one particular aspect. Their study, called The Shape of Holes, appeared in the journal Cognition. We discuss the many interesting aspects of holes as a subject of study in different disciplines and predict that much insight, especially about shape, will continue to come from holes. So, Melissa, this is about holes. Is that correct? Yes. The Shape of Holes is a more specialized report than its title implies. The Shape of Holes can be recognized as accurately as the shape of objects, yet the area enclosed by a hole is a background region. And it can be demonstrated that background regions are not represented as having shape. What is, therefore, the shape of a hole, if any? Let me confirm, Melissa, then this is about holes. This is about holes. The central question in the shape of holes deals with how we see and understand edges. Do the contours of a hole belong to the hole or to the surrounding object? Psychologists, philosophers, artists, and recently also computer scientists have wrestled with this and with each other for the better part of a century. When Ringo Starr in the animated movie Yellow Submarine picks up a round black hole and puts it in his pocket, we enjoy the joke and wit because holes have a special ontological status. They exist, but they are not real objects. Melissa, have you ever met Ringo Starr? No. Almost certainly, you have played with the black and white drawing made famous by Danish psychologist Edgar Rubin. That's the drawing in which you can choose to see either two faces or a vase or a vase, if you like, but not both two faces and a vase or a vase at the same time. Look at that drawing again now, if you have it around, paying attention to the border between black and white, and you'll see the nature of this whole question. Psychologist Stephen Palmer said, If the contour of the hole is assigned to the surrounding object, how can observers then see the hole itself as having a shape? A possible solution to the paradox is that, in fact, holes do not have a shape, but the surrounding object does. Melissa, have you ever met psychologist Stephen Palmer? I have, actually. What's he like? He's, he's, he's very nice. Did you talk about holes? We did. Bertamini and Croucher had volunteers look at line drawings that include particular kinks and bends. The goal was to better understand how we use such details to perceive particular shapes. The result, Bertamini and Croucher say that to human eyes, the edges of a hole are not themselves part of the hole. There's a rich, deep history of people looking into holes. Everyone, it appears, is aware of the oddity of the enterprise. In 1970, the Australasian Journal of Philosophy published an instant classic of hole scholarship. Written by Princeton University philosopher David Kellogg Lewis and his wife Stephanie, it bears the simple title, Holes. Holes the thing they wrote called Holes, has been described as a whimsical dialogue debating the ontological nature of holes. Melissa, have you ever met Princeton University philosopher David Kellogg Lewis and or his wife Stephanie? No. Flip Phillips, J. Farley Norman, and Heather Ross explored holes by using 12 sweet potatoes. They conducted their experiment at Western Kentucky University. The Phillips-Norman-Ross Sweet Potato Project required careful preparation. 
The team cast silhouettes of the sweet potatoes onto a projection screen, photographed the silhouettes with a digital camera, transferred the digitized pictures to a Macintosh computer, and then fed the data to a laser printer. Silhouettes of natural objects, sweet potatoes, Ipomea batatas, were created by casting shadows of the potatoes onto a projection screen. The shadows were cast by a 410-watt halogen light bulb onto the projection screen, located at a 1.5-meter distance from the light source. The silhouettes were then captured with the Toshiba PDR-M5 digital camera and transferred to an Apple Power Macintosh G3 computer. Melissa, do you own a 410-watt halogen light bulb? I do. The results of that experiment, sheets of paper imprinted with potato silhouettes. The resolution of the silhouette images of the 12 sweet potatoes, as captured by the digital camera, was 1600 by 1200 pixels. Now that's 12 pictures at 1600 by 1200 pixels. How many pixels total is that? 12 times, 12 times 16. The lot. The scientists then recruited volunteers. They asked the volunteers to copy each potato silhouette to an adjacent blank area, paying special attention to the dents and protuberances of each potato shape. The results, say Phillips, Norman, and Ross, confirm old theories that dents and nubs play a big part in how we recognize shapes. Taken as a whole, our results support the informal observations of Ibn al-Haytham, circa 1030, Bacon in the year 1267, Kafka in 1935, and Marr in 1982, that the convexities and concavities of a boundary contour are important for the perception of shape. In theory, this patches a gap in humanity's understanding of holes and other shapes. At the edges, it's the kinks, not the long, smooth stretches that matter most. Savor the kinks. What do we do with kinks? Listen to them. Follow the kinks. Follow the kinks. How shoppers react to headless mannequins with improbable dramatic readings by Robin Abrams. When people, especially women, shop for clothing, how important is it to have a head? That's the question asked and maybe answered by a study called Does the Presence of a Mannequin Head change shopping behavior. It's written by Annika Lindstrom, Hannah Berg, Jens Norfalt, Anne Rogovin, and Dhruv Grual, and published in the Journal of Business Research in 2015. Those authors at the Stockholm School of Economics and the Stockholm University in Sweden and at Babson College in Massachusetts set the stage for their experiment. Store mannequins are a very important part of visual merchandising, especially by clothing retailers that use them to display clothes and accessories. Of the 97 suburban shopping mall stores we observed that displayed mannequins, 32% of the retailers displayed mannequins with heads, while 68% of the mannequins displayed were headless. This article seeks to determine how the presence or absence of a head on a mannequin influences consumer purchase intentions. Lindstrom, Berg, Norfolk, Rogovin, and Grual asked some survey questions. They also used modern technology, specifically eye-tracking machines. Eye-tracking measures provide detailed insights into the processing that takes place when consumers observe mannequins. The researchers wanted to know what happens when shoppers visit stores, and also what happens when shoppers shop online. They did two separate but related experiments. Study 1. This study investigates if and how mannequin style, headed or headless, affects consumers' purchase intentions toward items displayed on the mannequin. In our survey, participants accurately recalled whether the mannequin had a head. 
In stores, the headed mannequin resulted in higher purchase intentions, whereas online, no significant difference emerged in purchase intentions between the two mannequin styles, headed and headless. That was the first experiment. Study two was a laboratory study focused on in-store, real-world mannequins that combined eye-tracking methods with self-reported questionnaires. This study included two mannequins, one with a head and one without. The mannequin with a head had painted facial features, a wig, and attached eyelashes. Both mannequins were outfitted with a loose-fitting tunic-style dress in a beige color, with shoes and accessories added to create a typical store display i.e. black opaque tights, a pair of black high-heeled shoes, a silver-colored bracelet, and a black clutch bag. The dress and accessory selections reflected the advice of a visual merchandiser working for a leading fashion manufacturer and clothing retailer. The merchandise and mannequins were generously donated by this retailer. And who were the shoppers who took part in this head-versus-headless experiment? And what were the results of this head-versus-headless experiment? The eye-tracking results revealed that those exposed to a headed mannequin looked at the head area. Those exposed to a headless mannequin tended not to look at that area. These trends applied to both novices and experts. That basic discovery may be worth repeating. The eye-tracking results revealed that those exposed to a headed mannequin looked at the head area. Those exposed to a headless mannequin tended not to look at that area. The researchers discuss this in further detail. Thus, mannequin faces attracted visual attention when present, but the head area did not attract attention when the mannequin lacked a head. They then discuss it in more detail the detail. The eye-tracking results also revealed that many participants who were exposed to a headed mannequin spent the largest share of their total viewing durations on the head area. This was the case among fashion experts. When looking at a headed mannequin, 41% of the fashion experts viewed the head area the most, 53% viewed the dress area most, 6% viewed the accessory area most, and 0% viewed the leg area most. When looking at headless mannequins, 0% of the fashion experts viewed the head area most. 71% viewed the dress area most, 24% viewed the accessory area most, and 5% viewed the leg area most. That, the researchers report, is how the fashion experts responded. But what about the people who were fashion novices? How did they respond? This was the case also among fashion novices. When looking at headed mannequins, 38% of novices viewed the head area most, 50% viewed the dress area most, 6% viewed the accessory area most, and 6% viewed the leg area most. When looking at headless mannequins, 0% of the fashion novices viewed the head area most, 87% viewed the dress area most, 13% viewed the accessory area most, and 0% viewed the leg area most. After presenting the details of their data, the researchers tell what they learned from doing this experiment with headed and headless mannequins. This research supports the prediction that heads increase attention to the mannequin and increase people's purchase intentions for merchandise displayed on the mannequin in a physical store. However, the results indicate that mannequin style, having a head versus being headless, does not influence purchase intentions for online shoppers. At the end of the paper, the researchers present what may be their greatest new insight. 
The eye tracking data confirms that heads on mannequins do attract viewing attention. However, they can detract from viewing the merchandise. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Boys will be boys. Some research done by and for adolescent males of all ages and sexes with improbable dramatic readings by Richard Baguley. First, a medical report about what to do if you're performing surgery on a man and notice that an especially manly part of that man's anatomy seems to be aroused. What to do if it gets bigger? By C. Caref and N. A. Watkin, published in the journal Annals of the Royal College of Surgeons of England in 2003. The authors at Conquest Hospital in Hastings, UK, and at St. George's Hospital in Tooting, London, report Anesthetic erection during transurethral surgery is dangerous and should be reversed before proceeding. Adequate anesthesia should be ensured. Compression of the shaft, penis, and cooling with application of ice-cold swabs or ethyl chloride spray should be tried in the first instance. If these measures fail, we propose intracavernosal injection of sympathiomimetics as the first-line pharmacological treatment. Inform your anaesthetist, unresponsive erection is a very good reason for postponing endoscopic procedures. A very good reason. Next, a medical study of sorts about an unusual use of a stopwatch. Serotonin transponder promoter region polymorphism is associated with the intravaginal ejaculation latency time in Dutch men with lifelong premature ejaculation by Paddy Casey Jansen, Stephen C. Backer, Janos Rethi, Eliko H. Zwinderman, Dan J. Tu, Berend Oliver, and Marcel D. Waldinger, published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine in 2009. The author is variously at Utrecht University in the Netherlands, at Semmelweis University in Budapest, Hungary, at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands, at Yale University School of Medicine in the U.S., and at Haga Hospital Lyonberg in The Hague, the Netherlands, report... Lifelong premature ejaculation is characterized by persistent intravaginal ejaculation latency times, i.e. LTs, of less than one minute and has been postulated as a neurobiological dysfunction with genetic vulnerability for the short IELTs related to disturbances of central serotonin, 5-hydroxytryptamine, neurotransmission, and 5-HT receptor functioning. Methods. A prospective study was conducted in 89 Dutch-Caucasian men with lifelong premature ejaculation. IELT during coitus was assessed by a stopwatch over a one-month period. By stopwatch over a one-month period. Next, a medical report about some effects of underwear on sexual activity in rats. Effect of different types of textiles on sexual activity. Experimental study. By Ahmed Shafiq, published in the journal European Urology in 1993. The author at Cairo University in Egypt reports... The effect of wearing different types of textiles on sexual activity was studied in 75 rats, of which were divided into five equal groups, four test groups and one control. 
each of the four test groups was dressed in one type of textile pants made of either 100% polyester, 50-50 polyester cotton mix, 100% cotton or 100% wool. Sexual behavior was assessed before and after 6 and 12 months of wearing the pants and 6 months after their removal. The polyester-containing pants generated electrostatic potentials while the other textiles did not. The potentials seemed to induce electrostatic fields in the intrapenile structures, which could explain the decrease in the rat's sexual activity. Next, a book about excrement in the late Middle Ages. Excrement in the Late Middle Ages, Sacred Filth and Chaucer's Fico-Poetics, by Susan Signey Morrison, published by Polgrave Macmillan in 2008. Next, a Frankfurt book about bullshit. On Bullshit, a book by Harry G. Frankfurt, published by Princeton University Press in 2005. The publisher of that book by Harry G. Frankfurt explains... One of the most salient features of our culture is there is so much bullshit... Everyone knows this. Each of us contributes his share. But we tend to take the situation for granted. We have no clear understanding of what bullshit is, why there is so much of it, or what function it serves. And we lack conscientiously developed appreciation of what it means to us. In other words, as Harry Frankfurt writes, we have no theory. Frankfurt, one of the world's most influential moral philosophers, attempts to build such a theory here. Next, a commentary about a Frankfurt book about bullshit kind word for bullshit the problem of academic writing by philip eubanks and john d schaefer published in the journal college composition and communication in 2008 the authors of that explain in contrast to harry frankfurt's checklist method of definition we examine bullshit as a graded category we suggest that some varieties of academic bullshit may be both unavoidable and beneficial Frequently, academic publication aims to create an ethos that will result in tangible rewards for the academic, tenure, promotion, grants, etc. The academic knows that such rewards are distributed on the basis of reputation. Such a reputation is gained by publishing books and articles that have been peer-reviewed before publication and positively reviewed afterwards. Hence, professional rewards come from academic reputation, and academic reputation comes from publication. This system seems to make academic publication a particularly rich field of bullshit. A particularly rich field. And a final item, a medical report about the case of the nudist diver and the anemone. Picadura de Anoma en Pen, article in Spanish, by J.M. Giniero Pais and colleagues, published in the journal Actas Urologicas Espanos in 2008. The authors of that write... We report the case of a man who, 35 years, while practicing and performing the naturist underwater photography to a group of anemones, suffer the bite at the distal end of the penis by one of them. Dream Telepathy and the Grateful Dead, with improbable dramatic readings by Melissa Franklin. We seldom look at research on extrasensory perception. Why bother? But... But one particular experiment seems worth special attention. Stanley Krippner, a psychologist at Saybrook University in Oakland, California, was one of the experimenters. Krippner wrote about it in an essay called An Experiment in Dream Telepathy with the Grateful Dead. 
1964, Montague Ullman, a psychiatrist, initiated a series of experimental studies at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. This research tested the hypothesis that sleeping subjects could dream about aspects of randomly selected target material, for example, films, drawings, photographs, or art prints. I joined Ullman soon after the studies began, and over a 10-year period, we carried out several experiments, the majority of which yielded statistically significant results. Hmm. Statistically significant. What does that mean? Mm, uh, reproducible. What does that mean? You get the same result. Ullman and Krippner suddenly saw a chance to collaborate with some researchers from a rather different field of expertise. When members of the Grateful Dead rock group volunteered to participate in a dream telepathy experiment, we decided to consider it a pilot study. The experiment involved people looking at pictures and trying to transmit those images as if by magic into the heads of strangers many miles away. One of the Dream Laboratory staff members, Ronald Suarez, selected 14 slides of art prints which he felt would be appropriate for the study. On the day of each session, he threw dice which directed him to two of these slides which were given to the staff member, Ronnie Mastrion, actually present at the concert. The slides were placed in a separate sealed opaque envelope. Mr. Suarez marked one of them heads while the other one was marked tails. At 11.30 p.m. each night, Mr. Mastrian tossed a coin and noted whether it came up heads or tails. This toss determined which envelope Mr. Mastrian opened and which slide he projected on the screen facing the concert audience. They carried out this experiment over the course of several nights. The six concerts involved in this pilot study were held at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York, approximately 45 miles from Maimonides Medical Center's Dream Laboratory in Brooklyn. In February 1971, when the study was executed, the members of the Grateful Dead included Jerry Garcia, who had originally suggested the project to me, Mickey Hart, Bill Kreutzman, Phil Lesh, Ron McKernan, and Bob Weir. The audience at the Grateful Dead concert would try to transmit the images. The experimenters arranged for two other persons located far away to try to receive those mental images. Two individuals who had participated in early experiments at the Dream Laboratory served as telepathic receivers. One of them, Malcolm Besant, spent the night at the laboratory with electrodes attached to his head. The other receiver, Felicia Paris, slept at her Brooklyn apartment. She was awakened by telephone from time to time during the night and asked for dream recall. Mr. Besant's dreams were tape-recorded and subsequently transcribed. Ms. Paris's dreams were recorded manually and subsequently typed for the judge's evaluations. Well, so how common is it for someone to spend the night at a laboratory with electrodes attached to his head? That's pretty normal. How common is it for somebody to sleep at a Brooklyn apartment? That's pretty normal. They're both normal. The audience at the Dead concert knew only that one person, not two, was waiting to receive their mental transmissions. The 2,000 people at the Capitol Theater were only informed regarding Besant. At 11.30 p.m., Mr. Mastrian flashed the following six-slide sequence on the screen facing the audience. You're about to participate in an ESP experiment. In a few seconds, you will see a picture. Try using your ESP to send this picture to Malcolm Besant. He will try to dream about this picture. Try to send it to him. Malcolm Besant is now at the Maimonides Dream Laboratory in Brooklyn. At this point, the randomly selected art print was projected onto the screen. Members of the Grateful Dead discussed the art print and encouraged members of the audience to send the images to Brooklyn. Krippner tells us the results of this experiment. 
If coincidence rather than telepathy had been operating, the judges' evaluations of the correct transcript-slash-target pairs would have attained chance results, providing higher scores only one time out of six. This was the case with Ms. Paris. Only one correct pair obtained the highest average rating from the judges. In the case of Mr. Besant, however, the correct transcript-target pair received the highest score four times out of six. There are only 12 chances out of 100 that such a result could have been obtained by coincidence. Krippner ends his report on a note of triumph. Their willingness to participate in this pilot study demonstrates the ingenuity and creativity of the Grateful Dead band members. The results of this study were published in a medical journal in 1973. Melissa, do you know if there's much uh, participation from the Grateful Dead in physics experiments? I don't think so. How likely is 12 out of 100? Very, very likely. This is not very unlikely. Capacity of the Nose, with improbable dramatic readings by Richard Baguley. What is the air conditioning capacity of the human nose? Spring this question the next time you find yourself at a party where everyone else is an HVAC engineer. HVAC engineers specialize in heating, ventilating, and air conditioning, but as a group, HVAC engineers are surprisingly ignorant about the air conditioning capacity of their own noses. Your question might throw the engineers into a two-part frenzy. First, measuring each other's nasal cavity dimensions, temperatures, and vapor concentrations, and then competitively calculating, calculating, calculating until the party ends. You could save them the trouble. Tell them about a report called The Air Conditioning Capacity of the Human Nose which was published in the Annals of Biomedical Engineering. There, Sarah Naftali and her colleagues at Tel Aviv University tell how they attacked the question by using three artificial noses. None of these artificial noses are ones that a mother would love if she saw one installed on her child. The first artificial nose, which the scientists call nose-like, would seem anything but if it were mounted on someone's face. This rough-hewn product of a machine shop has internal ductwork that incorporates the anatomical aspects of the nasal cavity that most affect gas transport patterns and allows for the removal or addition of functional nasal features as required by the analysis. The dimensions of this model are taken from an average data of human nasal cavities. A later version is called, unappealingly, nose-like with valve. More specifically, we modified the nose-like model by adding a spherical constriction between the nostril opening and anterior to the turbinates with a minimal passageway of 1.9 millimeters to mimic the nasal valve. The third artificial nose is a mechanically detailed reproduction of one individual's nose with lots of twisty, bumpy idiosyncrasies. More specifically, an accurate 3D reproduction of a real anatomy of the human nasal cavity was constructed from published and anatomical images of coronal cross-sections at 2mm spacing. Because this nose, like most noses, is far from average, the scientists use it mostly in a sort of reality check to compare against the performance of the nose-like nose and the performance of the nose-like nose with valve. The ensuing artificial huffing and puffing taught them two things. First, that the nose-like noses behave realistically enough for scientists not to have to do too many uncomfortable experiments using actual people's actual noses, and second, that the basic ductwork appears to handle 90% or so of a person's air conditioning needs. 
it delivers air of usable temperature and humidity to the lungs, no matter how cold, hot, humid, or dry the atmosphere happens to be. Now, should you happen to be introduced to one of the very few party-going HVAC engineers who does know the air conditioning capacity of the human nose, do not despair. You can still stimulate a good conversation. Simply ask, what is the cooling power of the pigeon head? For years, birders disagreed as to how their favorite animals managed to keep from overheating. More than a decade ago, Robert St. Laurent and Jacques Larochelle of the Université Laval in Quebec, Canada, wrote a paper called The Cooling Power of the Pigeon Head. The Cooling Power of the Pigeon Head describes how St. Laurent and La Rochelle inserted electronic temperature probes via the rear exhaust openings up into the intestines of several birds, then body-wrapped the birds, then put the birds into a wind tunnel. They discovered that simply opening one's beak, if one is a bird, without making a sound is sufficient to keep things from getting overheated. It remains for others to see if this applies to party-goers in conversation, as well as to birds in flight. Poor birds. Yikes. Basic black dress. Hot or not? With improbable dramatic readings by Jean Burko Gleason. Why do Bedouins wear black robes in hot deserts? The question so intrigued four scientists, all of them non-Bedouins, that they ran an experiment. Their study about it, called Why Do Bedouins Wear Black Robes in Hot Deserts, was published in the journal Nature in 1980. The report says, It seems likely that the present inhabitants of the Sinai, the Bedouins, would have optimized their solutions for desert survival during their long tenure in the desert. Yet, one may have doubts on first encountering Bedouins wearing black robes and herding black goats. We have therefore investigated whether black robes help the Bedouins to minimize solar heat loads in a hot desert. The research team, C. Richard Taylor and Virginia Finch of Harvard University, and Amaram Shkolnik and Arya Borut of Tel Aviv University, quickly discovered that, as you might suspect, a black robe does convey more heat inward than a white robe does. But they doubted that this was the whole story. They found inspiration and guidance in a 1969 report about cattle, John Hutchinson and Graham Brown of the Ian Clooney's Ross Animal Research Laboratory in Prospect, New South Wales, Australia, worked with Frisian dairy cows. The Australian team discovered that light and heat penetrate deeper into white cattle hair than into black cattle hair. The saving grace for cattle is that even a tiny amount of wind whisks away that extra heat. However, cattle are not people. So what of man and woman? Taylor, Finch, Shkolnik, and Borut measured the overall heat gain and heat loss suffered by a brave volunteer. They described the volunteer as a man standing facing the sun in the desert at midday while he wore, one, a black Bedouin robe, two, a similar robe that was white, three, a tan army uniform, and four, shorts, that is, he was semi-nude. Each of the test sessions, black-robed, white-robed, uniformed, and half-naked, lasted 30 minutes. It was hot there in the Negev Desert at the bottom of the Rift Valley between the Dead Sea and the Gulf of Eilat. 
The volunteers stood in temperatures that ranged from a just semi-sultry 35 degrees Celsius, about 95 degrees Fahrenheit, to a character building 46 degrees Celsius, about 115 degrees Fahrenheit. Though the man is now nameless, this was his day in the sun. The results were clear, as the report puts it. The amount of heat gained by a Bedouin exposed to the hot desert is the same, whether he wears a black or a white robe. The additional heat absorbed by the black robe was lost before it reached the skin. Bedouin's robes, the scientists noted, are worn loose. Inside, the cooling happens by convection, either through a bellows action as the robes flow in the wind or by a chimney sort of effect as air rises between robe and skin. Thus, it was conclusively demonstrated that, at least for Bedouin robes, black is as cool as any other color. Okay, that was really interesting, but what about the guy who was half-naked, and what about the one who was wearing an army uniform? We can't talk about that. Why? Oh, I guess we can. Okay. All right. Did it, is there any way to measure the temperature of a well, person with no clothes on? But we can't talk about it today. Okay, another day. Another day. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening, if you've been listening, to Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh, then think. For details about what we talked about, visit our website at improbable.com. We could very much use your help so that we can make new podcast episodes and other improbable and ignobel stuff. Details are at our website and at www.patreon.com slash improbable research. If you become an improbable donor, you'll get special access to improbable things. I'm Mark Abrams. Today, Jean Burko Gleason, Chris Katsapis, Melissa Franklin, Robin Abrams, and Richard Baguley lent their voices, expertise, opinions, and personal quirks with dramatic readings from improbable research studies you may have overlooked. It's possible that Seth Glicksman is the improbable production assistant. It's possible that the mysterious John Shedler, or maybe the subterranean Bruce Petschek, did the audio engineering of this episode. Next time on this podcast, we'll look at something or other. Until then. Goodbye. 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 <laughs>